Here we are now with chapter number 20 in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. This chapter is called A Support Person. And we all know who that is in this story. It's Ken. He's the one that has been supporting Treya through all these ups and downs and all these things that she's been through. Now, the doctors are at war with each other because on the one side, they've got the Gonzalez program happening and on the other side, they have their orthodox doctors. And Gonzalez is now giving Treya a 70% chance of turning it around, which means establishing a, a stabilized situa- a stabilized state with the tumors, or actually even going into remission. And yet the orthodox, doc- orthodox doctors, the oncologists, are giving her about two to four months to live. Now this is because of the nature of the program that Gonzalez, Dr. Gonzalez is putting Treya through. And it is such that the tumors are expanding rapidly in size, and they can't tell if that's because they are dying off or if they actually are expanding and growing. So it's a bit of a back and forth. And Treya, well, she does feel exhausted. But apart from that, she feels quite good. And she's also looking quite good. She's looking quite beautiful, actually. And she has no major symptoms, so no cough, no headache, no extra visual problems or anything like that. So she's actually quite functional. And she even reflects that she feels quite good sitting on the back deck and just looking out the view, doing her meditation. And around this time, well, Treya gets asked to speak at a convention, at a conference. And there's a bunch of people speaking, and the topic was meant to be that, well, how has your worldview changed, or how have you overcome hurdles in your inner world? And, well, she has her moment to stand up and actually say, in just a few minutes, it's a very short speech, but in just a few minutes, she's able to deliver a real summary of all that she's been through, all that she's learnt about herself, how she came by the self-knowledge that she has now. And it's a real expression of her own courage and her own honesty. And this speech that she makes was so well received that she received a standing ovation. So that really says something. And Ken reflects that, well, she's just vital and vibrant. And she lights up the stage. And everyone can feel it. Everyone can see it. 
Everyone can look at this woman and just say, wow, her whole being says life. It's just something, there's an aura around her. And so many of the people in the audience were people from the community that well, Trey has been working with. So they know her story. They know exactly what she's been through. And yet for her to stand up on stage and to deliver a real testament, well, that's just something, isn't it? That's just... It's just truly remarkable, a truly remarkable moment. And she does at one point say that the doctors have given her two to three years to live. And, well, that's her lying. She actually lied in this speech because she knew that the doctors had given her two to three months to live. Two to three months to live, not two to three years to live. And that is, well, that's another level of courage. That's another level of wisdom. Because you can walk out. In, well, what, what could she have done? In her situation, she could have walked out and really just laid it on thick. Look, I could be dead in a few months. And yet she chose to take the softer line so as not to alarm people. And that shows, that actually shows how much at peace she is. Now, if she was distressed or she needed people to empathize or she was really trying to dramatize as much as possible or it was still a foreboding thing or there was a lot of fear surrounding it, or maybe she would have walked out and said, look, I have four months to live. I have three or four months to live, something like this. And that would have given it a different tone. It would have been a different person that would have made that kind of speech. But not Treya, no. She knows how to express herself without laying it on thick, even though she could have. She knows how to express herself with sincerity with a solemn honesty and yet without inducing fear or anxiety in her family members and her friends. So that's quite a important detail. It's quite an amazing thing for her to be able to choose that way of speaking. Now I'll read you the last little bit of this speech that she's made because it's just so beautiful and we'll see how it feels for me to read it and we'll see how it feels for you to hear me read it. I find that the emotional roller coaster of advanced cancer becomes a wonderful opportunity to practice equanimity at the same time that my passion for life increases. 
learning to make friends with cancer, learning to make friends with the possibility of an early and perhaps painful death, has taught me a great deal about making friends with myself, as I am, and a great deal about making friends with life, as it is. I know that there are a lot of things I can't change. I can't force life to make sense, or to be fair. This growing acceptance of life as it is, with all the sorrow, the pain, the suffering and the tragedy, has brought me a kind of peace. I find that I feel ever more connected with all the beings who suffer in a really genuine way. I find a more open sense of compassion, and I find an ever steadier desire to help in whatever way I can. There's an old saying, it's popular among people with cancer, that goes, Life is terminal. In a way, I feel lucky. I always notice what age people are when they die. I always notice newspaper articles about young people killed in accidents. In fact, I used to cut out these as a reminder. I'm lucky because I've been given advanced warning and the time to act on that warning. For this, I am thankful. Because I can no longer ignore death, I pay more attention to life. So, Ken decides he's going to write his own letter out to his friends because Trey has been sending a lot of letters and we haven't heard much at all from Ken. So he writes a letter and as it happens that, well, a journal, a public journal, the, the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology picks it up and decides to publish it. So... What he says, what he talks about is, well, his experiences and his insights and lessons from being a support person and what it's like to be alongside Treya in his journey. Now, to begin with, he says that essentially the outside stuff that you do to support someone is comparatively easy to deal with. It's physical and it's obvious and it's caregiving. It's the washing the dishes, driving them somewhere, taking them to the doctor's office, helping them with this or that or whatever. Can you tie my shoelaces for me sort of thing. The solutions are fairly obvious. What's more difficult is the inner turmoil that starts to build on the emotional and psychological levels. And Ken says, well, this inner t- turmoil has two sides. One is private and one is public. So on your private side, you're in your own mind and you keep saying to yourself, well, at least I don't have cancer. 
My own problems can't be that bad. Doesn't matter how bad I feel or how much I worry or what sort of anxieties I have. Doesn't matter because, well, at least you don't have cancer. Well, at least it's not as bad as this person. At least you're not dying. At least you haven't got a sickness. At least you haven't got a disease. Now, this actually causes the extra problem of now you can't voice your original problem. And if you're introverted, well, then this will start to fester in certain ways. And really bad cases of this will mean, well, you actually want to kill yourself. Now, if you're extroverted, well, then you'll project it out onto them, the person that you're taking care of, and you'll want to kill them. So in any rate, in either side, well, death hangs in the air. And anger, resentment, and bitterness creeps up. And yet also, on top of all these negative dark feelings, there's a terrible guilt about having any of those dark feelings. So it's a double sandwich. You feel bad and then you feel bad about feeling bad. And then you beat yourself up about how much someone else has it worse. Now, the other side of this is the public aspect. So instead of keeping it all in, you actually decide to, well, bring it out in the open. And you talk about your problems and you say, okay... Well, I'm not going to just sit here and fester on my inner turmoil. I'm going to try and work it through. So the first question is, who do you talk to? Now, the important thing to understand is the person you're taking care of is not the person to talk to. It's too much. It's just not right. They're too close to home. They're too involved. And that can be a terrible mistake for someone to be the person that needs taken care of and also to be trying to do the role of helper themselves or therapist. Well, that just can compound the problem. So the question is, well, who do you talk to? So a professional therapist? Well, yes. That's the, that's the correct answer. That's the right answer. But of course, a lot of people in this situation, they take to talking to their friends and to their family. And Treya has this friend, Vicky Wells. I think, I think that's actually Treya's sister might be. Maybe just a friend or a family friend. Anyway, but she has this phrase which Ken uses to describe this, and that is, nobody's interested in chronic. And essentially what that means is, well, say, say you have some problems and you, you want to talk it out with your friend. So you go to your friend, you say, oh, I've got these problems, and you talk it through. And then at the end of the conversation, well, you feel a bit better and your friend feels good because they've helped you. And that seems to work first time. But then it happens again and you go back again and you say, well, I've still got these problems because your situation hasn't changed. You're still caring for this person. You're still a support person. And then your friend listens, but your friend doesn't feel quite so good about it the second time. And then there's a third time. 
And then what actually builds up is this this sort of oh we need to sort of avoid this person like oh don't bring up the don't bring up the cancer oh don't bring up what it's like for for Ken to support Treya no 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 don't do that and that becomes another sort of tension in the relationships an unsaid tension so you have well an inner brooding an inner private issue that you can't deal with instead of being able to bring it out into the public. So that's why I use therapists, and that's why I use groups. And the best way to do this is to be in a group of people who are in the same situation. And a lot of the time, these groups, well, they're just bitching sessions. And you might say, oh, well, huh, my wife has cancer, but I really wish she would die. Oh, my wife has cancer, but she's a real bitch. Oh, my wife has cancer, but duh. You know what? Some days I just think she deserves it. My goodness, can you imagine saying these things? What an outrage. They're so charged. There's so much energy in them. Like, just just saying them, just saying this, just saying the word. I, I don't even have a wife. <laughs> And I'm saying it and it's got the, like, just the words have so much charge to them. And that charge, well, that's anger. That's frustration. That's a real, ugh. That's the passion. And that passion, well, it can't come out when you're confronting. You can't confront your, the person you are supporting with that. And so you go to your groups. You go to your therapist and then you bring it out and then you're burning the anger. You're working through the anger and then you realize, oh my goodness, did I really just say that? Oh my goodness, did I really just say that I wish my wife would die of cancer? Did I really just say my wife is such a bitch? And then you can start to deconstruct what you said alongside with, well, the feeling And if you do this with a therapist, well, then they have methods, they have techniques for really working it through. And what I'll add to that is that, well, the stage after the anger, and the stage after the anger is, well, Realizing that you're hurt. Realizing that you're helpless. Helpless to help your partner. Helpless to make their situation better. And you're hurt that you can't be what they need you to be. And deeper still, you're hurt that you can't love them openly. Because under anger is love. And there's a quote that goes along with this, which is that hate is love starved. And a support person wants to love the person they are supporting. 
I want to give them their love. I want to give them their good feelings, their good experiences. And yet, under many circumstances, that's not possible. And that love can fester into hurt and resentment and pain and helplessness. And that can lead to, well, desperation, brooding, bottling up those feelings. And that can lead to hate, a furious hate. And it's really not possible to hate someone unless you really actually do love them. Because if you don't love them, well, you're just not interested. It's just boring. You just forget about the whole thing. So whenever there's hate, there are strong feelings involved. And underneath all strong feelings is love. And furthermore, well, there are some things that simply should not be said to your partner. And Ken's generation, he says, has this belief that, well, honesty is the best policy. Well, spouses should discuss every single thing that bothers them about the other spouse. Bad plan, says Ken. Openness is important, but only so far. At a certain point, openness can become a weapon. It can become spiteful. You can make a comment and say, well, I was just telling the truth. Oh, this is just how I really feel. And he says, well, you do need to learn the gentle art of telling compassionate lies instead of just blurting out how you really feel in dis- in dis- despite how it might hurt the other person. So, for example, this is an example Ken uses. He says, well, your partner comes to you and you say, well, how are you doing to say? How are you doing today? And you say, well, I feel like hell, and my life isn't mine anymore, and why don't you go jump off a bridge? Well, that's no way to speak to a cancer patient, is it? (laughs) That's not a very good answer. It might be truthful, might be honest, but a very bad answer. And instead, well, Ken suggests you you say something a bit more like this. I'm tired today, honey, but I'm hanging in there. And there's nothing gained by dumping on a loved one. Save the dumping for your therapy sessions. And if you're aware of that, well, you can actually go into dumping consciously. Go into your therapy session with, like, imagine this. You go into your therapy session and you take a real initiative and a real conscious attitude towards your dumping. And you walk into your therapy session and you say, okay, today I'm dumping. You just have to sit there and you just have to listen. And then blah, 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 blah. You say all all that you want to say. And then at the end you say, whew, okay. Thank you for listening. I feel very different now. And you go into it consciously. And you work with not only the script 
of what's being said, but also the feeling. And you do it consciously so you're aware of your surrounds and your state and, well, also your therapist. And there will also be other tricks that your therapist can use. And then you do those tricks, those techniques, those methods. And then, well, then you're making progress. Then you're actually working on your self-knowledge. And that's very different to brooding and having these things come up between you and your partner and self-sabotaging the relationship as a way of getting back at them unconsciously, subconsciously. And so, furthermore, from just speaking with your partner, the other side of this is being an emotional sponge. And this is very important because you go to your relationship and you say, well, I need to support you. What do I do? And this comes back again to doing and being. Like, what what do I do to help you? Now, say, say Treya has a problem or she's got a decision or she, coming up or some choices about treatment or whatever. And she says something or she does something or she's in this situation. What does the support person actually do? Well, they, they are quite literally quite powerless. They can't actually do anything. And yet what they try to do is say, well, they try and give an answer. Or they say, feel better. Or you should be thinking this way. And this is very different to just being. This is very different to just being the emotional sponge. Now, when you're an emotional sponge, you're being, you're not doing. So you're not trying to change the situation. And you don't say things like, Oh, it's going to be all right. Oh, you shouldn't think so bad. Oh, you should think positive. No, you just be with them. And that means if your partner is crying, well, you remain present with them. That means looking at them, holding them, feeling what they feel. Don't distract yourself. Don't philosophize. You don't even have to have long conversations or anything like that. Just be with them. So remain present with them. So experience the moment that they are going through fully. And of course that means, well, you start to feel what they are feeling. And you have this shared connection. You have this shared experience. And that can be very strong. That can be a very strong relationship building process and the opposite of that is oh she's crying again oh no stop crying no don't do that and that just creates well more separation more differences between you The other big thing that Ken brings up in this letter about support people is the 
component of the choice of the support person. And this is a very simple and yet very profound realization. And this is that at any time in this difficult process as a support person, well, you can walk out. You can leave. And Ken realizes this. He could have leave, left. He could have, he could have said, oh, you've got cancer. I want a divorce. No one was threatening him to stay with Treya. No one was tying him down. No one was intimidating him. No one was telling him, oh, you have to do this. No, it was his choice. And he could, that's the harsh truth. People are free to move in and out of the relationships they have. That is such a, is such a heavy realization. You can simply just walk out under any circumstance, even under the circumstances of cancer. And you can spin any old story or any amount of different psychologies around it or narratives that will go along with it. But the hard, cold fact is that it's your choice. And Ken, well, he made this choice, actually. And his choice was that he's going to stay. And he's going to be with Treya no matter what. Through thick and thin, he chose that he would be with her. And the, the mistake that he made, well, he's, he forgot that choice. He forgot. And that led to a resentment. It led to blaming. And it can even lead to a jealousy of, oh, why do you have someone taking care of you? And so, well, when Ken had learnt this lesson, he made it part of his routine. So he would affirm every day that it's his choice and it would be a part of his affirmations, a part of his prayer. And yet this time, well, now he knows what it entails. Now he knows what that means. And that means, well, he would make the choice again. And that is very profound. That is a very heavy insight to have, which is that Ken now knows what he has to go through if he chooses to be with her, and yet he does still choose to be with her. And he would go through all of it again. He would do it all again, and he would make that choice again. Now, the quote that he uses to illustrate more of this and to finish up this letter is from Mother Teresa. And it's, she simply says, love until it hurts. And Ken does talk about how 
being a support person actually turns into a spiritual practice of selfless service. And it's therefore feeding into his own spiritual growth as a type of meditation in action. And that really is quite a lot for us to learn from. Someone so insightful and so experienced. And the response to Ken's letter was, well, overwhelming, as you can imagine. And it's quite shocking to realize that there are so many support people out there that are quietly hurting. And they don't have a voice because they're, over, they're overshadowed by the person they are supporting in so many ways. And so it's quite beautiful that Ken has been able to give voice to these people and to say something that needs to be said. And he's taken the guts to, well, admit his difficult mistakes and to say the tough things that are hard to say. And to reveal that, well, he's coming from a place in the heart. He's coming from love. And that's why it's so touching to hear these insights. Now, the next part in this chapter, well, Ken goes into an explanation of some of his meditation practices. And this is the Dog Chen that he'd learnt on a recent retreat. And it's not exactly a meditation practice. And yet, because it's, it's a little bit mysterious, because to realize spirit, you have to realize that it's ever-present. And it's in everything. So there's no escaping it and there's no attaining it. So Ken spends some time distinguishing between meditation, which is, well, some of them are for working out your interior world. Some of them are for changing your state. Some of them are for building cognition. Some of them are for insight and so on. And all that stuff, all that meditation stuff on the one hand. But on the other hand, you've got realizing spirit. Which is always 100% there. Stop chasing your dog's tail. Essentially. You can practice mindfulness. Because there is forgetfulness. But you can't practice awareness. Because there's only one awareness he says. And that awareness, well, that is the spirit. That is the infinity. That is the Godhead. And there's no way out of it. Even when you think think you're out of it, (laughs) well, you're not. Because every finite is an expression of the infinite. It's a fractal of the infinite. And this is related to our story because, well, Ken is starting to bring this practice into 
everything that he's doing. And Treyer is starting to do that as a rehearsal of dissolving into the all. So it's not a meditation. It's a spirit, and it's it's not exactly a spiritual practice. It's simply a dissolving of the boundary. And they're both doing this, and they're both learning that, well, this is actually what happens when you die physically, as you dissolve back into the all and the one. And Treya has, well, she has a few more doctor's appointments and a few more test results come back. And Gonzalez says that, well, as these lung tumours dissolve more and more, Treya might find breathing difficult. And some people on the enzymes actually cough up dead bits of dissolved tumour. And in due time, well... Treya actually did have to go on to portable portable oxygen. And this didn't actually diminish her equanimity, and she even still did her walks on the treadmill, strapped with the mini portable oxygen tank to her. So it really does say something about how determined she is, doesn't it? Talk about passionate equanimity. And the orthodox doctors, well, they're starting to quiz her about her fear of death because they are, well, they're convinced that she's using this Gonzalez program as a massive denial of death and a refusal to follow their recommendations, which actually aren't going to work at this point. And Ken remembers this conversation that Treya has with one of her doctors and The doctor asks, Treya, are you afraid of dying? And she says, no, I'm really not afraid of dying, but I am afraid of pain. I don't want to die in pain. And the doctor says, well, let me assure you, we can handle that. Modern pain measures are very sophisticated. It's been a long time since we've had a patient die in pain. So I promise you that won't happen. But you're not afraid of dying? And Treya says, no. Why not? asks the doctor. Because I feel that I'm in touch with a part of me, a part of everybody, that is just all that is. When I die, I'll just dissolve back into that. That's not frightening. And when she said these words... She was so obviously speaking her truth that we could see the doctor actually believed her. And then he actually got quite emotional. And the doctor said, I believe you, Treya. You know, I've never had a patient like you. You have no self-pity. No self-pity. I've never seen anything like it. It's a real honour to work with you, if I may tell you that. 
And Treya reached out and gave him a big hug and a smile and simply said, thank you. And that's where the chapter ends. So we'll be back very soon with the next chapter. And as you can imagine, well, it's showtime. It's the business end. Because either in a few months' time, Trey is going to be well on the mend and in recovery, or she's going to be dead. We don't know which one it's going to be. And that's all I have to say for now.